calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit slash nocturnal. Chapter 3. The Morning News The buzz of an alarm clock brought Rex to Pravdachuk awake. He'd been dreaming a great dream that made him feel wonderful inside. He tried to capture it, to lock in the memory, but it slipped away. The nice feeling faded, replaced by the aches of his body and that pain in his chest. Rex felt so sick. He just wanted to sleep. Wanting to sleep during the day was nothing new. He routinely dozed off during second-hour trig class, but this was different. He'd been hurting for days. His mother wouldn't let him stay home. He dragged himself out of bed. He blew his nose on some crusty Kleenex he'd used the night before, then shuffled out of his tiny bedroom into the hall. The hallway ran the length of the floor, a blank wall on the left, five doors on the right. The wall held old framed pictures from a time Rex barely remembered. Pictures of his dad, of Rex when he'd been really little, even pictures of his mom, smiling. He was glad for those pictures, because he had never seen her smile in person. Rex walked into the toilet room. The room was barely wider than the toilet tank itself. It wasn't really a bathroom, because it just had the toilet and a sink. The next room down had the bath, and no toilet, so Rex called that the shower room. He took care of his morning business and was headed back to his bedroom when he heard it. From down the hall, a voice on the TV made him stop. Not the voice itself, but the name the voice had spoken. A name both from Rex's unremembered dream and from his unforgettable past. He wiped his hand across his runny nose. He turned around and walked down the hall, past the shower room to the living room, which was just inside the front door. He entered quietly. His mother, Roberta, was sitting in her chair that faced the television. The screen's glow shone through her wiry hair, silhouetting her skull. Rex stood there, waiting to hear the name again, because he'd just dreamed about that name, dreamed about that man. And he'd drawn a picture of that man just last night, before he went to bed. He had to have heard it wrong. But he hadn't. Maloney was a longtime priest at the Cathedral of St. Mary of the Assumption in San Francisco, until he was caught up in a sex abuse scandal and removed from that post. Maloney served a year in jail and was on probation. San Francisco Chief of Police Amy Zhao said in a press conference this morning 
that the force is working to gather information on Maloney's murder, but that it's too early to make assumptions about the killer's motives. Father Maloney's dead? Rex said the words without thinking. Had he thought, he would have quietly walked away. She turned, leaning over an armrest to look back at him. The television's light played off her pockmarked face. A cigarette dangled from her skinny fingers. What are you doing in the TV room? Uh, I just... I heard Father Maloney's name. She squinted. She did that when she was thinking. She nodded almost imperceptibly. I remember the lies you told about him, she said. Dirty, filthy lies. Rex stood there, motionless, wondering if she'd get the belt. Finish getting ready for school, she said. You hear me talking to you? Yes, Roberta. She didn't like it if he called her mom or mother. When he'd been little, he'd called her those names. But sometime after his dad died, she told him to stop using them. Rex quickly walked out of the TV room before she could change her mind. Once out of her sight, he ran down the narrow hall to his bedroom. His room had a bed, a little TV with a video game console, a dresser, and a small desk with a stool, the sum total of his existence. He threw on his clothes and grabbed his backpack, remembering to get his notes for freshman English off the floor as he did. No time for a shower. He had to get out of the house before Roberta thought of a reason to get mad at him. He hoped he didn't smell like pee. Some bum was using the alley outside Rex's window as a bathroom. Not that it really mattered. Sometimes Roberta wouldn't let him shower at all. Before Rex left, he picked up the drawing sitting on his desk, the one he'd made last night. The picture showed a much larger Rex, a Rex with muscle-bound arms and a big chest, using his bare hands to snap Father Paul Maloney's left leg. Now Father Maloney was dead. The drawing made Rex feel funny. Funny and wrong. Rex put the drawing in the desk's drawer. He closed it, then looked at it to make sure no part of the drawing stuck out. Time for the long walk to school. Rex prayed he could avoid the Boyko bullies. Father Paul Maloney was dead, and that was awesome. Maybe for once, Rex could make it to school and back without getting his ass kicked. And the day would just keep getting better. Chapter 4 All in the Family The San Francisco Hall of Justice takes up two full city blocks. The long, featureless, seven-story gray building located at 850 Bryant Street houses most divisions of the San Francisco Police Department. Gang task force, homicide, narcotic, vice, fraud, operations, and, of course, administration. SWAT and missing persons have offices elsewhere in the city, but by and large, most cop-related things that don't involve a local precinct happen at the hall. Brian set his weapons and keys on the conveyor belt, then walked through the metal detector. He recognized the old uniform on the other side. Recognized the face, anyway. Brian was shit with names. Clouser, the white hair said with a nod. Brian nodded back, then collected his gear. Pookie came through next. Chang, the cop said. Lawrence, how's that artificial hip treating you? They think the screws on the ball part are coming loose, the man said. Feels like someone is scraping a knife in my hip every time I take a step. Terrible, Pookie said, shaking his head in sympathy. You suing? 
Nah, Lawrence said. I just want it fixed. Pookie gave the man's shoulder a squeeze. Good man. You change your mind, holler at your boy. I know some great lawyers. Oh, and happy anniversary. Tell Margaret I said congrats on number... Is it 23? Lawrence's hard face split in a smile, which lasted only a few seconds until he turned to glare the next person through. Brian and Pookie headed for the elevators. We gotta get you on Jeopardy, Brian said. How the hell do you remember this crap? Pookie pushed the up button, then shrugged. Not all of us are as antisocial as you, my black-clad little buddy. Teddy Oblomowitz had been one of the city's financial golden boys, a heavy contributor to the San Francisco Opera, the ballet, GLBT charities, and just about anything involving a park. Oblomowitz had been a well-known philanthropist, a mover and a shaker. He had also been a money launderer. His murder, and the simultaneous disappearance of his wife, created reverberations throughout the organized crime community. Brian and Pookie walked into the conference room for the morning status meeting. Their fellow task force members were already there. Because money laundering was a financial crime, the task force included Christopher Kearney from the Economic Crimes Unit. Kearney was okay, except for the fact that he dressed in sweater vests like some Ivy League grad, and he insisted on being called Christopher. So, of course, everyone called him Chris. A case of this magnitude also necessitated participation from the district attorney's office, hence the presence of assistant D.A. Jennifer Wills. No charges had been filed as of yet. The task force didn't even have a suspect. So Wills was just there to keep tabs on the case. She mostly stayed quiet, only piping up if a planned action might get a perp off the hook somewhere down the road. Since it was a murder investigation, homicide took lead. Inspectors Stephen Koning and Steve Ballpuller Boyd, also known as the Brothers Steve, ran the fieldwork. Koning was as cool as cool got, a stand-up guy by all accounts, Ballpuller Boyd, on the other hand, seemed to be oblivious to the fact that he was quite repulsive. The sweaty, porn-stashed, self-touching man had little concept of personal space. Assistant Chief Sean Robertson ran the show. He was second in command for the entire SFPD. Brian liked him. Robertson made people walk a fine line, but he was fair and didn't let the power go to his head. Everyone knew Robertson was being groomed as the future chief. Zhao was in her late fifties. Another six years, maybe, and the whole department would probably be Robertson's. Brian had seen all these faces before. Today, however, he noted a new one. A guy in a three-piece talking to Robertson. Brian nudged Pookie. Pooks, check out the suit. Fed? Pookie looked, nodded. Yeah, but no way he's a gunslinger. Guy looks like he farts tax code. Excuse me for a moment, Bri-Bri. Daddy has to see about getting himself a date. Pookie put on his best smile and closed in on Wills, the room's lone female. She was taking advantage of the pre-meeting lull to go over a legal pad full of notes. Jen-Jen, Pookie said. Stylish as always. That outfit new? She didn't bother looking up. I'm not your type, Chang, but good eye, it's new. Of course it is. I could never forget seeing something that fetching. The shoes really set it off. And what do you mean you're not my type? Jennifer looked up, brushed her blonde hair out of her face, 
then held up her left hand and wiggled her fingers. No ring. Word on the streets is you only like the married ladies. Pookie leaned back, put a hand on his chest. Assistant D.A. Wills, I am hurt and offended by your insinuation that I contribute to infidelity. She again bent to her legal pad. Pookie walked back to Brian. Smooth, Brian said. Sexual tension, Pookie said. Vital to any good cop drama. He tapped his forehead. It all goes in the vault to someday be played out in my brilliant scripts. Steve Boyd walked up to Brian and Pookie. He had a cup of coffee in his left hand. His right hand scratched at his balls. Where polyester Rich's upper lip scraggled looked like it belonged on the face of a 1950s movie villain. Boyd's walrus mustache was so thick you could barely see his mouth move when he talked. Closer, Chang, Boyd said. The man tilted his head toward the suit. Word is the nerd brought us a lead on the hitter. Pookie sighed. <sighs> the hitter? Ball puller, you've been watching the AMC Gangsta Movie Marathon again. Never miss it, he said. I hope he's got something. We've been shaking down all of Abramowitz's clients, haven't come up with jack shit. Robertson clapped three times to get everyone's attention. Let's get started, he said. Robertson's thick brown hair had recently started to go gray at the temples, a color that matched his glasses. He always looked half-rumpled, neither sloppy nor neat. His blue tie and bluer button-down shirt didn't quite hide a growing gut. That's what a desk job would do to you. Let's make it quick and get you back on the streets, he said. I want to introduce Agent Tony Tryon, FBI. The three-piece suit man smiled. Good morning. I'm here because I've spent the last five years watching Frank Lanza. Ball puller Boyd started laughing. <laughs> Lanza? As in the mafia Lanzas of the long-ago time? The FBI agent nodded. Chris Kearney crossed his arms over his sweater vest-covered chest and glared at the FBI agent. Brian wondered if Kearney doubted the man or was just jealous of the tailored suit. The mob hasn't been here since Jimmy the Hat died, Kearney said. The Tongs and the Russians pushed them out. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts jennifer clacked her pen against the table tap 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 Wait a minute. Did you say the hat? His mob nickname was the hat? Not exactly frightening, is it? Tryon smiled at her. She smiled back. Brian noticed Pookie's scowl at the FBI agent. James Lanza frightened people just fine, Tryon said. He ran the La Cosa Nostra in San Francisco for almost 40 years. His dad, Francesco, founded the whole thing back in Prohibition. Tryon picked up a folder off the table and walked to a corkboard at the end of the room. He pulled out black and white copies and started pinning them to the board. Pictures of four men went up in a row, with a single face on top. The face in that photo showed a man in his early forties, 
short black hair parted on the left side. Even in the still shot, Brian thought the man looked smug and condescending. Tryon tapped that top picture. Francesco Joseph Lanza, known as Frank, son of Jimmy the Hat, grandson of the first Francesco. For years we've known Frank has been asking for permission to take back San Francisco. Looks like he got it. We think he's been here for six months, maybe more. Bullshit, said Ballpuller Boyd. We'd have heard he was in town. Tryon shook his head. Like his father, Frank doesn't draw attention to himself. He's probably not here for the clam chowder, if you know what I'm saying. The FBI agent smiled at the other cops, as if waiting for them to laugh at his joke. No one did. His smile faded. He shrugged. Anyway, Frank Lanza has been here for about six months. He brought a few guys out with him. Tryon tapped the faces below Lanza as he called out the names. The big fellow with a shaved head is Tony Fourballs Gillum, Frank's right-hand man and bodyguard. The guy in the middle with the oft-broken nose is Polly Hatchet Caprice. This one is little Tommy Cosimo. Last but not least, and the real reason I'm here, he tapped the final picture, is this sleepy-eyed gent, Pete the fucking Jew Goldblum. Pookie raised his hand. The guy's nickname is the fucking Jew? At least it's better than the hat, Jennifer said. Goldblum is bad news, Tryon said. No convictions, but he's got several hits to his name. If Lanza was behind Abramowitz's murder, you can bet Goldblum did the deed. But why Abramowitz? Pookie said. Taking out an accountant. Accountants don't mean shit. No offense, Chris. It's Christopher, Kearney said. Pookie hit his forehead with the heel of his hand. Ah, damn, sorry about that. Kearney looked at Pookie, then used his middle finger to rub his left eye. Pookie laughed. This accountant controlled cash flow for several organized crime outfits, Kearney said. Ablamowitz worked for the Odessa Mafia, the Watching Triad, and Johnny Yee of the Sui Singsatong. More recently, Ablamowitz was moving a lot of cash for Fernando Rodriguez, leader of the Norteños. All those gangs were serious business. But Ryan's role in homicide brought him face to face with the Norteños more than any other outfit. For decades, the gang had spent most of their energy fighting their main rival, the Soreños. Under Fernando's guidance, however, the Norteños were expanding operations. Fernando was known for his smarts as well as his boldness. He would order a hit on anyone, anywhere, at any time. Ablamowitz controlled money, Kearney said. If you want to mess up cash flow in San Francisco, he was a good place to start. Tryon again tapped on the picture of Frank Lanza. Maybe Lanza offered Abramowitz a deal. Maybe Abramowitz didn't take the offer. Robertson stood and smoothed his tie. Thank you, Agent Tryon. That gives us more to look at. Tryon has copies of these photos for all of you, and he's been kind enough to share addresses and hangouts for Lanza's people. Brother Steve, go talk to Polly Caprice and little Tommy Cosimo. Klauser and Chang, track down Goldblum and see if he has anything to say. Everyone started to file out, but Pookie hung back. Brian waited to see what his partner wanted. Hey, Assistant Chief, Pookie said. Got a minute. Robertson nodded, then shook Tryon's hand. Tryon walked out, leaving Robertson with Pookie and Brian. 
What's up, Pooks? You have some thoughts on Lonza? No, Pookie said. We've got thoughts on Paul Maloney. Robertson nodded as he pushed his glasses higher on his nose. Ah, I should have seen that coming. Brian's throat felt scratchy and dry. He needed some water. Hopefully Pookie's whining wouldn't take long. We want this one, Pookie said. Come on, man, it went down in the middle of the night. It's ours. Robertson shook his head. Not going to happen, gents. It's Verdi's case. Don't get me wrong, Pookie said. I like Rich Verdi. I also like my grandpa. My grandpa drools a lot and tends to shit himself. Not that I'm making any association with Rich's age, mind you. Robertson laughed. (laughs) The fact that Chief Zhao wants you guys on the Oblomowitz case is a compliment to your skills. Be happy with that. Now go talk to Goldblum. Find me something. Robertson walked out. Pookie shook his head. I hate this L-I-T-F-A shit. L-I-T-F-A? Leave it the fuck alone, Pookie said. The guys who should be on the case intentionally kept off it? An M.E. that hasn't left the office in half a decade is signed to work the body? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K, Bri-Bri. Pookie had a point, but a couple of strange things didn't add up to a conspiracy. Sometimes the brass made decisions that didn't go your way. Forget it, Brian said. Come on, the sooner we find Goldblum, maybe the sooner we get back on nights. Chapter 5 Robin, Robin, Bobobin. Robin Hudson backed her Honda motorcycle into the thin parking strip on Harriet Street, just outside the San Francisco Medical Examiner's office. Several bikes were already there, some owned by her co-workers. The guys had 1,200s. The women mostly had scooters. Robin's ride sat right in the middle, at 745 cc's. The morgue van was already backed into the unloading dock. Maybe it had been a busy night. She walked past the ambulances-only sign and up the ramp toward the loading dock. She liked to enter work every day the same way her subjects did, through the doors where the bodies were rolled in. It surprised her to see her boss get out of the van and gingerly step down to the ground. Dr. Metz, how are you this morning? Metz stopped to look at her. He gave her his trademark single, slow nod. Good morning, Robin. Did you go out on a pickup? When she'd started working here seven years ago, Metz had gone out on pickups three or four times a week, whenever there was a really bad killing or something unusual about a body, something interesting. As the years had passed, she'd watched him go out less and less. These days he rarely left the office at all. He still ran the department, though, expecting his people to display the same dedication and perfection that he had shown for almost four decades. I did, he said. I'll do the x-rays myself right now, then I'll be in the private exam room for the next few hours. I don't want to be interrupted. Would you mind handling the department? Sure, no problem. Robin tried to keep her voice neutral, but she couldn't help but feel a little excited by the request. Yet another sign that he was grooming her to replace him. She had a lot of work ahead of her, and a long way to go to qualify in his eyes but everyone knew the chief medical examiner job was hers to lose. Happy to do it, she said. Thank you. And I will want to use that RAP scan machine. You received the training on it, yes? She nodded. The rapid DNA tester was a potential sea change in law enforcement. 
DNA samples were usually taken at the morgue, then shipped off to labs for processing. Depending on the test, it could take weeks to get results, sometimes even as long as two months. The new portable machines, however, could be taken right to the body and provide a reliable DNA fingerprint in a matter of hours. Rapid Analysis, the RapScan 2000's manufacturer, had given San Francisco a model because of Dr. Metz's nationwide reputation in forensics. Metz had asked Robin to master the device. For all the RapScan 2000 could do, the size still amazed her. It was no bigger than a typical leather briefcase. Labeling and data entry were done on a built-in touchscreen. That same screen displayed results. Sample cartridges were the size of a matchbook, and the machine could process up to four samples simultaneously. It's easy, she said. You could have taken it with you into the field, you know. It's small enough to fit right in the back of the van. That's the point of it, Doc. If you'd started the process while you were in the field, it would probably be kicking out the results right now. He thought about that, then gave his single slow nod. That would have been helpful. Call the rapid analysis company and tell them I want a second test unit, but do that after you show me how to operate it. Sure thing, Dr. Metz. Why was he in such a hurry? She peeked past Metz to the body on the cart. The white body bag hid any details of the corpse, although the form inside it did look a little misshapen. She detected a whiff of urine. Not unusual for a body to void itself upon death, but it had to be pretty saturated for her to smell it through the thick material. She tilted her head toward the bagged corpse. Something interesting in there. Metz looked at her for a few moments, as if he was thinking of saying something, but then decided against it. He spoke a fraction of a second before the stare would have become uncomfortable. Maybe, he said. We shall see. A case like this, it's delicate. Maybe I'll tell you about it. Maybe soon. When you do, boss man, I'm all ears. Oh, I saw your boyfriend while I was out. How is Brian these days? Robin's smile faded. Brian and I broke up. Metz's eyes saddened. Recently? About six months ago. He looked at her, then looked away. This time it was uncomfortable. Yes, you've told me about this before. Now I remember. Not knowing what else to do, Robin just nodded. Metz rolled the body into the morgue one slow step at a time. Even at his age, he liked to handle everything himself. It was hard to watch him forget things. Had to be murder for him. A man whose life and identity rested squarely on his intelligence to see the first signs of his memory slipping away. Robin walked through the receiving area where bodies were declothed, weighed, and photographed. She entered the offices, which consisted of a dozen gray cubicles that made the old yellow carpet look brighter by contrast. Printouts and paper clippings were tacked up to the cubicle's fabric, showing news coverage of various murders or high-profile suicides. Any photo that showed someone from the examiner's office in action immediately went up as a trophy. She put her helmet and jacket in her cubicle, then retied her long ponytail as she looked at the chalkboard. That was how the San Francisco ME office tracked incoming bodies and assignments. Not on computers, but on a three-foot-wide, six-foot-high green chalkboard. The board was divided into three-by-three three sections that slid up or down, one under the other. The top board listed last night's work. Ten names scrawled in chalk, all reading the time of arrival. The examiner assigned to the body, and N.C. 
for natural causes. The board on the bottom was today's work, already four lines deep. Two of those listed NC, while the other two listed a question mark. A question mark meant a probable homicide. She saw the line on the bottom with Metz's name in the assigned column. The stiff's name was Paul Maloney. Robin let out a long, slow whistle. Father Paul Maloney. That was high profile. Was that why Metz had gone on the pickup? That made sense. And yet, she'd felt like he'd wanted to tell her something else, something he'd ultimately decided she wasn't ready for yet. What that might be, she didn't know. Whatever it was, it would have to wait, because according to the board, Singleton John, N.C., and Quarry Michelle, question mark, were waiting for her. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.